This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. A conservative super PAC based in Washington, D.C. spent millions of dollars to defeat Rebecca Clayfish in Wisconsin's Republican primary for governor. The group Club for Growth Action is a billionaire-funded advocacy group and freely spends in Republican primaries to defeat Republicans it deems not conservative enough. The group had abstained from getting involved in Wisconsin elections for the past nine years, but has reinserted itself to influence the Republican primary for governor, reported the Capital Times. The group spent $3.5 million to make sure Clayfish lost the primary, including running attack ads insinuating she was co-opted by China. Clayfish lost to Tim Michaels by 35,000 votes. The governor's race has attracted lots of outside money, with out-of-state Democratic and Republican groups spending over $12 million each to influence the outcome. Governor Tony Evers pledged to increase state spending on public schools by almost $2 billion if he is re-elected. Evers announced this new, new plan today, which would cover the education budget from 2023 to 2025. This proposed budget would be unlikely to pass the current Republican-controlled legislature, which has rejected proposals from the governor before, the Wisconsin State Journal reported. This budget would increase spending on mental health services for students, as well as expand access to subsidized school meals. The proposal would also increase the revenue limits that are currently imposed on local school districts, which have been a stumbling block for school budgets in recent years. U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin announced in a press release today that she is reintroducing a bill that would require cable providers in Wisconsin to air Green Bay Packer games, no matter the local media market. Currently, several Wisconsin counties that border other states are served by cable providers that are based in Michigan or Minnesota. The bill would require those providers to provide Wisconsinites with the option to receive Wisconsin-based broadcasts that would be tailored to state residents, including Packers games. The state of Wisconsin will receive more than $14 million from a settlement with Jewel Labs, a popular seller of vaping products, following an investigation into the company's marketing to youth and teens. This money is Wisconsin's share of a $430 million agreement between Jewel Labs and the federal government. An investigation revealed a marketing campaign specifically designed to entice young people, despite the fact that the purchase of vape products is illegal for people under the age of 21. Furthermore, the investigation found that Juul engaged in age verification processes that it knew were ineffective. Besides this payout, the settlement also severely curtails marketing strategies that the company is allowed to use going forward, including prohibiting free samples and paying influencers. The Republican candidate for Dane County Sheriff filed a lawsuit against the Sheriff's Office for its handling of a police raid he participated in at the Magnuson Grand Hotel. The candidate, Anthony Hamilton, was a detective with the county's tactical response team when they searched the hotel in March of last year. During that search, he became concerned that it may have required a warrant and expressed his concerns to other officers, according to WISC-TV. Accounts of the incident subsequently became muddled. Hamilton was suspended without pay for five days and was removed from the tactical response team. According to the sheriff's office, this was due to Hamilton misstating facts and sharing helmet camera footage on social media. The lawsuit alleges that the sheriff's office acted in retaliation, pointing out that Hamilton has received disciplinary action following the search and that a promised outside investigation has not been forthcoming. Madison's water utility has requested an 18% revenue increase pending approval by the State Public Service Commission, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. 
The, this increase represents a monthly residential bill increase of about $5 per month on average and would be the third such increase since 2019. The utility says this money is needed to address the costs of replacing cast iron piping from the 1940s and 50s that is prone to leakage and breaking. Madison's water rates are higher than other similarly sized cities and are nearly twice as high as bills in neighboring Sun Prairie and Middleton. This proposal goes next goes to a public hearing, which will be held tomorrow on Zoom. UW-Madison's union and university housing employers are increasing the hourly wage they offer student employees from $11 an hour to $15 an hour, the Capital Times reports. This increase comes during a tight labor market in Madison and is designed to entice more students into seeking employment on campus instead of pursuing more lucrative positions elsewhere. A spokesperson for university housing says they have already seen an uptick in student applications following the announcement. Meanwhile, the minimum wage for non-student university staff also increased this year from $15 to $17. And now on to today's top stories. Budget season is now upon us. Today, Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway unveiled her 2023 capital budget proposal. WORT producer Nate Weggehout went to Olin Park today to find out what's in and what's out of next year's budget plans. Standing in front of Lake Monona today, Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway announced her over $368 million capital budget proposal for 2023. Combined with a six-year capital improvement plan also announced this morning, the proposals guide major projects like infrastructure and new construction. Alongside the operating budget, the capital budget and six-year improvement plan drives the city's fiscal planning for the next year. The main project in today's announcement, transportation, or more specifically, bus transportation. That includes $23 million for the purchase of electric buses for bus rapid transit. The budget also includes almost $50 million for an inner-city bus terminal housed at the State Street parking garage. That project, which is slated to begin next year, would include an indoor waiting area in the State Street parking garage, as well as housing above the garage. Also included in the budget is the beginning of a major reconstruction of John Nolan Drive, which is slated to begin in 2026. Rhodes-Conway says that John Nolan Drive should be an eye-popping introduction to the city of Madison. In this budget, I am investing $21 million of federal and local funds to rebuild John Nolan Drive, including its aging causeways, bridges, and bike paths. Coupled with our Lake Monona Waterfront Design Competition, we are laying the foundation for a new Madison waterfront that serves both as a gateway to downtown and as an accessible park for residents and visitors alike. The next big ticket item in the budget is a focus on housing, starting with $3 million to build the new permanent men's homeless shelter on the city's east side. Using funding from both the city, county, and already secured federal funds, the $21 million facility is expected to begin construction in 2024. Additionally, Mayor Rhodes-Conway says that the budget will also invest $60 million over six years in affordable housing across the city. In the Bayview neighborhood, redevelopment is underway on 130 affordable housing units, a beautiful community room, and other amenities. On the east side, Movin' Out and Red Caboose are building a four-story building 
to include 32 affordable units and a child care center right in the building, in the Union care Corners area, where a whole new community is taking shape right on a transit line. Finally, the mayor's proposed budget includes investments in communities and neighborhoods. On top of over $12 million over six years to improve bike paths around Madison, it also includes $15 million for construction of an Imagination Center at Rindall Park and $5 million to expend the Warner Park Community Center. The total cost of the 2023 capital budget comes to $368.4 million, almost $14 million more than the 2022 capital budget. Mayor Rhodes-Conway says that there are multiple reasons why this year's budget is larger than the last, but a main factor is inflation. But also, just to be frank, inflation has hit everything in our community, including our capital budget. And so we've had to really scrutinize projects and make some decisions about what will go forward in the next year and what we might put off a year or two more based on the amount of inflation that we're seeing. Notably absent from the budget is increased funding for the Madison Public Market, which is now running $5 million over its budget. Mayor Rhodes-Conway says that that shortcoming is just too steep. And at this point in time, the gap in funding for the market is large enough that I don't feel comfortable moving forward on my own. Uh, I need to consult with the Finance Committee and with the Council as a whole to understand what their level of support is for the project. And so we'll be doing that in the coming weeks. The Public Market Foundation, the group spearheading the project, told WORT last week that if the $5 million was not included in the mayor's budget, they would call on the city's finance committee to add the money to next year's budget instead. This capital budget will be introduced at tonight's Common Council meeting. The mayor's operating budget proposal is expected to be released next month. That's the budget that deals with day-to-day -day expenses like services, staffing, and programs. City leaders will spend the next few months hashing out both spending plans and alders can propose amendments to the budgets. Both the capital and operating budgets are slated to be finalized in mid-November. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. Last Wednesday, residents of Mount Pleasant piled into a packed auditorium at Gateway Technical College in Racine. They were there to participate in a community conversation about the uncertain and overpromised future of Foxconn. WRT reporter Emily Kaysinger has the story. The Foxconn deal was officially signed five years ago in fall of 2017. Touted by former Governor Scott Walker during a re-election bid, the deal promised billions in investment from the Taiwanese manufacturer to build a sprawling LCD panel manufacturing hub in Mount Pleasant. Politicians promised that up to 13,000 full-time, high-tech jobs would be created. Now, five years and millions of tax dollars later, about 1,200 people work on that campus, fewer than a tenth of the once-promised number. Homes were torn down to make way for a manufacturer that never came, save for a hundred-foot-tall glass orb in several scattered buildings. In the intervening years, Foxconn has not brought a big-screen LCD production facility to the area. It also has failed to manufacture other items it floated, from electric vehicles to coffee vending machines. But the village of Mount Pleasant is still on the hook for the massive infrastructure built out in preparation. Foxconn-related debt represents 500% of Mount Pleasant's operating revenue. That represents a huge risk to the community. As panelist Kathleen Gallagher, business columnist at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, explained. The financial burden of all of this is in large part on the locals. 
you know, the state, to build out the highway, used federal money, right? I mean, it's the locals who are carrying the debt and who the people whose homes were torn down. And, I mean, obviously the elected officials here chose to do it, but the issue going forward is what happens if Foxconn doesn't make that tax payment in 2023? Mount Pleasant's bankrupt. Kelly Gallagher is the organizer of A Better Mount Pleasant, a community watchdog critical of the project. Gallagher spoke to her and the crowd's long-running frustrations with the project. Foxconn certainly hasn't worked out the way we had hoped, and we won't be able to change that, but saying so is an important step in the process of accountability and in trying to determine exactly who gets to decide how a community develops. We think that this is a conversation worth having. The ensuing conversation was at times heated. A key debate turned on how valuable the land is, That land represents money in the village's pocket, or a burning hole in that pocket instead. Oshkosh representative Hintz said that the land is valuable, as it is next to an airport in UW-Milwaukee, and the land is already developed, though Gallagher argued that that assessment was too rosy. Lawrence Tabak, author of the recent book Foxconn, an in-depth investigation of the project, argued that the value of the land is in what it offers the community, not solely in its dollar value. The basic question, though, is the community better off now than it was before? The community might be worth more in terms of land values. That doesn't matter. What matters is, is the quality of life better, or do you envision it becoming better in the future? And therein lay the crux of the problem per the panelists. Nobody knows what the future holds. Representative Hintz argued that even if Foxconn dragged their scheduled repayments to the village out through lawsuits, ultimately they would be forced to pay through the terms of their contract. But Gallagher argued that if the town or county debt is sold off to a third party, such as a private equity firm, that control and ability to force Foxconn to terms is sold off with it. And Tabak called out local government officials who are not present at the town hall. It's really frustrating because a lot of the questions that I knew we would get tonight are questions that need to be answered by the public authorities and the professionals who are working at Mount Pleasant Village Hall. And and they aren't here to answer those. And it would be wrong for us to pretend to have the answers that we don't. While the panel ultimately did not come to an agreement on what the future of the Foxconn project looks like, moderator Neele Patel co-founder of the tech news website The Verge, ended on asking what Mount Pleasant residents could do to reclaim a sense of agency over the direction of their community. David Merriman, an urban planning professor at the University of Illinois Chicago, suggested pressuring local officials to create contingency plans. I would ask local officials for various contingencies. What happens if, you know, Foxconn doesn't make the payment in this year, et cetera, et cetera. How are you going to respond? Lay it out on paper now. Tell us what you'll do and start to have a discussion about what's the best way to move forward. And if that fails... Ultimately, in a democracy, if your elected officials don't do what you want them to do, um, you change your elected officials. Reporting for WORT News... This is Emily Kaysinger.
It's now 6.23 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. After a two-year hiatus, Madison Labor Fest returned yesterday. The field and parking lot outside the Madison Labor Temple on South Park Street was packed all Monday afternoon. People came to listen to music, get brats, beer, and corn on the cob, and also talk unions as numerous local struggles, including a proposed strike by nurses at UW Health, are coming to a head. WORT reporter Greg Jaboski talked to people in the crowd at Labor Fest yesterday. What's your name? ML. Are you uh, are, are you with the union? Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm in Union 159, IBEW. Why are you here today? I'm just here to see what's going on, check out the crowd, and be a part of the solidarity movement. I'm Jeff, who works for a local 18 sheet metal workers. Just enjoying the nice day and supporting my local union. We're at previous Labor Fest. It's been off for a couple years. So what's it like coming back to the Labor Fest? Glad to be back. Enjoying the nice weather. Had a couple beers, a little bit of food. Just visiting with people I've worked with in the past. Holding some uh, some balloon sculptures. Where'd you get those? Uh, the guy making balloon animals for the kids. I think he's gone now, but we got two little piggies and uh, some type of hat. Yeah, and it's your job to like get those home without them popping. Yeah, I'm just dragging around for my kid <laughs> while he's all playing. Uh, he's eight. Enjoying himself? Yep. Yes. Uh, what's your name? Kristen Scheffler. And, and your name? Tim Scheffler. Are, are you with MPI? We we both are. Yes. We're both in MPI. Um, why are you out here today? This is something we've missed doing since lockdown, and we'd like to come out and just be with everybody, and especially supporting our nurses, supporting our Red Cross, just making sure everybody's unionized. Did you regularly attend Labor Fest before COVID? Yes. Yeah. Here in line for food. What are you What are you hoping to get? Corn on the cob. <laughs> From either or both of you, what do you think of the current situation with the teachers? The board's proposing a you know, raise below inflation. How's that going to affect you, and what do you have to say to people? Honestly, I, I sit on the bargaining committee and the handbook committee, and I can't stop swearing about it. So <laughs> I'm not sure how much I'm supposed to And say. I get to hear it, too. So. <laughs> What's your name? My name's Kate Walden. I'm a nurse at UW Hospital. A big contingent from, from SEIU, probably yes. for a good reason. Can you yes. tell us why you're here today? Yeah, uh, we're here to get our union back. We are a union of nurses who have been organizing for over three years to get our union back at UW Hospital to get UW to recognize our rights. And we are planning to go on strike on the 13th of September if that doesn't happen. I've heard a lot of support for the nurses today. Well, what can people do? They can support us on the picket line. We'll be there September 13th through the 15th out in front of UW Hospital from 7 in the morning on. They can donate to our community strike fund and they can tell UW Hospital to recognize us and recognize our rights. I have on and off throughout my working life as an adult been in labor unions. It's always better if you're in a unionized workplace. I am a nurse. I was recently working at UW, but I left to um, go back to school. Everybody knew that you got a better deal if you worked in a unionized hospital. Thanks so much. Anything else you want to add? Um, no, I just I hope the nurses are able to really get what they need and the community will be out in support of them, but that I'm sure. That was Greg Jaboski reporting from Labor Fest. Temperatures in Madison are becoming much cooler in the morning and not heating up until later in the day as autumn approaches. With more about what to expect this week, here's weather producer Caitlin Davis. With UW-Madison students' summer coming to an end today and the autumnal equinox coming up September 22nd, we are starting to feel the cooler weather in the mornings. Temperatures in the early mornings are going all the way down to the low 60s and high 50s, 
and aren't heating up until later in the day. Temperatures are sitting at 75 degrees right now, with humidity sitting in the mid-50s, and wind speeds are low at 4 miles per hour coming from the north-northeast. We are still seeing a bit of cloud cover, and the barometric pressure is high, but dropping down. Although temperatures are dropping, the UV index is still reaching the high categories. Although they were not getting all the way up to 8 like they were earlier in the summer, they are averaging reaching 6, which is still high and could cause burns and skin damage. Pollen counts today and to the next few days are in the moderate and low categories. If you are someone who suffers from bad allergies, consuming honey from a local market can help over time. Ingesting local pollen can help people to be less sensitive to pollen over time. So try eating some local honey. Or not. Do your own sting. Students returning to class tomorrow will most likely have a dry walk or bike ride to campus with really pleasant weather. If you have an 8 a.m. class, it is a good idea to bring a sweater with you as temperatures in the morning are going to be in the low 60s. Temperatures later into the day tomorrow could reach the low 80s but will likely stay within the high 70s. Mild winds will be coming from the north tomorrow and humidity will be high in the morning but will drop down as the day goes on. Thursday and Friday should both be pleasant days as well with temperatures in the low 80s and will most likely be dry. But looking into the weekend, there's a chance that we could be seeing some showers. As of now, Sunday is looking to have much cooler temperatures, possibly only reaching the mid-60s, which we haven't felt in a very long time. Sunday has a higher chance for showers and high humidity. And to the Badgers, enjoy your first day back tomorrow. With your WORT weather report, I'm weather producer Caitlin Davis. Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining us. Classes are about to begin on the UW-Madison campus, which means the return of the Daily Cardinal. Cardinal call producer Hope Carnop is joined by Sophia Vento, editor-in-chief of the newspaper, along with its managing editor Jessica Sonkin, to discuss what to look forward to this semester. We're just really, really excited to sort of delve back into these different areas that we weren't able to do previously and just really get to work and we're excited. Hello and welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup. Tomorrow is the first day of the fall semester, and the Cardinal is jumping back into regular coverage. Today I'm joined by our new editor-in-chief, Sophia Vento, and managing editor, Jessica Sonkin, to preview the fall semester and share updates about the Cardinal. Thank you both for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having us. We're happy to be here. Can you both introduce yourself and explain your experience with the Cardinal so far? Yeah, so my name is Sophia Vento, and I am the editor-in-chief for the 2022-23 school year. Before being in this position, I was the college news editor and then was a staff writer. Um, This is my third year um, with the paper. I started in freshman year, and I'm just really excited to lead the paper this year and get to know all the new writers and everything. (laughs) 
And my name is Jessica Sonkin. I'm this year's managing editor. I am a senior here, so my first year I started as a staff writer, then I became campus news editor, then news manager, and now here I am. What are some of the stories you're most excited for our writers to take a look at this semester? Yeah, that's a big question. I mean, with our new chancellor having um, started uh, this summer, I feel that there is a lot there, just given that this is sort of a new era of the university and under new leadership. But even outside of the campus and you know university community, there's so many big stories that are happening this year, whether that's the gubernatorial election or U.S. Senate election, um, as well as so many other just evergreen stories that, you know, whether they're economy issues or health issues, you know, with COVID. Um, So there's just a lot there um, that is affecting not just students, but Madison community and Wisconsinites that we're really excited to dive into. Just adding on to that, we're really excited for some of our sports coverage. We're going to get a little bit more active on those social platforms as well to bring digital life to that content. And we're really excited to be reviving some game day issue newsletters, which you all should subscribe to because we have an exciting football season that is underway. And we're also just excited about some quirky enterprise stories that we're looking at because we have access to so many different viewpoints and perspectives being on this campus here in Madison. What are some of your favorite stories that you've both covered at the Cardinal so far? I did primarily campus and college news coverage. So I remember freshman year, I was able to do some reporting about lake parties that were pretty (laughs) interesting just during, it was during COVID. So there was a lot of concerns about that, but the lake was also melting. So that was definitely a really interesting story to dive into. Back when I was campus editor, my favorite story, not content-wise necessarily, just the act of breaking the news, was when we found out that I think it started out as nine and grew to 26 Greek chapter houses, Mm -hmm. fraternity and sorority life houses here on campus were going into lockdown. This was when we were a hot spot during the pandemic back in the fall of 2020. And it was really interesting coverage to break. I also really like this profile piece. I worked on this past spring for an alumna named Carol. She was an undergraduate student here at the university amid the post-war boom, and she made strides in feminism here on this campus, not just in the journalism school, but all around. So she's a really fascinating person, and I really enjoyed getting to speak with her and learn more about the Cardinal's history. What are some of the changes in store at the Cardinal this year, especially related to our printing schedule? Yeah, so we will be increasing um, to twice monthly print issues. Uh, Last year, we had been printing once a month. Um, and then during the 20, uh, 2021 school year, we were not printing at all due to COVID. So we are slowly inching towards back to our increased printing capacity and we're so excited to uh, be able to be putting out more content and so that students you know whether you're at memorial union or uh, college library or anywhere on campus you'll be able to see our papers on stands additionally we are um, still having quite an emphasis on multimedia content our podcasts our radio presence our photos we're also looking to hopefully expand into video again again that's something that was uh, greatly reduced because of covid so We're just really, really excited to sort of delve back into these different areas that we weren't able to do previously and just 
really get to work and we're excited. Yes, we are working on amping up coverage all around. And with that comes lots of opportunities for anyone who is interested in participating. But yeah, we're looking at taking over a bunch of different platforms now, not just looking to print, but making sure to emphasize that digital presence. I mentioned the newsletter before for game days, which is super exciting. And yeah, be sure to keep an eye out for stands because we'll have a higher turnover rate this year with physical papers and some fun covers with cool art from our staffers. Do you have any other goals for the Cardinal this year and priorities for our news coverage? That's a great question and a big question. I mean, I think ultimately our biggest goal always is to be putting, you know, just as a newspaper is to not, is to just be putting out the best and most consistent and reliable coverage on campus. Um, And right next to that is just providing a environment for new writers and new staffers, new photographers, artists, whatever, a good environment where they can just really, um, you know, feel welcomed in a uh, student organization, but develop, you know, really important professional and hard skills that will translate into industries they're interested in or just like one of their passions. So ultimately, I think those are our biggest goals fundamentally, but more intrinsically and specifically one thing we are really emphasizing this year is breaking news coverage um jessica mentioned that really goes hand in hand with our digital presence whether that's social media or just on our website itself um so that's definitely something we've been really looking forward to and look forward to executing yes and i mean many of our staffers are journalism majors Mm -hmm. but a very large percentage of them aren't because It's a newspaper that includes a lot of different coverage and features specialties other than reporting and writing. And so we're keeping these opportunities open, but we also want to emphasize the fact that students with any level of experience can step into our office and create something they're proud of. Is there anything else you want to share about the upcoming semester on campus or for the Daily Cardinal? Yeah, I mean, we're so excited for this new class of freshmen to be on campus. We're always so excited to have just a new community to look at through reporting, but also just to have potentially join our team. But um, we will be at the student organization fair which is at the Cole Center on the 13th and 14th, so be sure to come check us out. And additionally, we will have a fall recruitment meeting at our office in 2142 Vilas Communication Hall on University Ave at 4 p.m. on September 16th. So we are really excited just to get back started um, covering this campus and the surrounding community and to hopefully meet some new writers, photographers, artists, the whole thing. So yeah, we're just really excited for this year. Bring all ideas. Nothing's too small. We're excited to work with anyone who emails us or walks in through this door. We're so excited and demonstrated interest we've seen already, and we're really excited for the coverage we have to share with you. Thank you both so much for coming on the show, and I'm so excited to be working with you this new school year. Yes, hope! (laughs) That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Watch our website and our stands around campus for our Welcome Back print edition out this Thursday. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison.
If you saw turtles digging holes in your yard back in spring, odds are you may be seeing some baby turtles beginning to hatch. Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg breaks down how such small turtles are able to survive on their own. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I want to talk about turtles. And I want to talk about baby turtles because it's baby turtle hatching season at the Wildlife Center. We have over 250 turtle eggs in care right now, and it's pretty amazing to see these little guys just hatch out of their eggs and only be about the size of a quarter, maybe a little bit more, and figure out to ourselves, like, wow, these this took all summer for them to hatch and now they have to be independent and on their own. And it's a really scary thing to see tiny baby turtles and wonder, are they gonna be okay? Are they gonna survive? They're so small, what do they do? And we know that so many of you also think the same things, especially if you found a baby turtle. Like it's it's hard to imagine that these little things are just like hardy enough to survive a Wisconsin winter. And you know, how did they make it to the point where they're at already? And it's just, it's an amazing thing. We love turtles at the Wildlife Center. We work with so many of them. And I, I thought I would just, you know, revisit a segment to talk about, you know, what do turtles do when they're laying their eggs? How does it work? It's it's just a cool thing. So let's let's start by talking about North American turtles. Did you know that there are actually 56 different species of North American turtles? turtles. I think that's pretty neat. We have about 12 of them in Wisconsin, and we have our most common species, at least our wildlife center, are going to be the painted turtles and snapping turtles, but we see a lot of other ones. All of the turtles in, that are freshwater here in Wisconsin, and this comes from a lot of information that the DNR has compiled of Turtles of Wisconsin, but also the Turtle Conservation Program. Definitely highly encourage you to check out those websites if you Google turtles of Wisconsin, you will definitely find it. But all of our turtles lay their eggs on land. And so what they're doing is making a nest and they dig. And so they, some of them, you know, they've got long claws that are very powerful. And it's about once a year that, you know, especially painted turtles and map turtles, for example, are going to go up to their nest. And it, and it sometimes can take a while for them to be able to get to their nest. But usually it's going to be in the evening time. So around dusk, sometimes dawn, but usually it's going to be more of an evening task for these mom turtles. If you have a tiny turtle, they might only lay a couple of eggs. You know, we see somewhere like eight to 10 usually on average in our painted turtles. But if you've got a giant snapping turtle, they can lay up to 80 some eggs. And we definitely have had a couple of that of those types of situations this year with lots and lots of eggs. So once the eggs are, you know, laid in the spot where the female wants to dig and make a nice spot, you know, they go to a certain depth and a certain width, they leave them completely alone. And it's one of those things where it feels weird, but turtles don't really give any sort of parental care. They just leave their eggs in a little spot in the ground. Maybe you've seen them if a turtle has come to your yard digging and then leaving. Um, but it takes about anywhere between 60 to 90 days so about three months on average in Wisconsin. It really depends on the species and the temperature. So, you know, did you know that the temperature really makes a huge difference? Sometimes we'll have turtles that will hatch in the early fall. Sometimes they won't even hatch until the next spring. And it all depends on the type of uh, temperature we're at and whether or not there'll be a freezing type of situation. But turtles are 
hardy little species and they have uh, sort of like an antifreeze type of consistency that's with it within their eggs that actually causes them not to freeze during the winter. And it really does depend on how deep the eggs are and if there isn't a lot of snow cover that kind of helps keep the the consistent temperature under the soil, yes, there's definitely a chance that they could freeze. But the temperature and the the depth and how the winter goes, the fall temperatures, all of that plays a part into how long the eggs have to incubate for. But then also it determines the sex of those turtles. So, you know, we've got a situation where you, we at the Wildlife Center probably want to produce more female turtles when we incubate our eggs. And so if we have a higher incubation temperature, we might produce more females and males will be at more lower temperatures. So out in the wild, it really just depends. It depends on the season, depends on climate, depends on the snow cover. It depends on so many different factors, but basically it's kind of hit or miss. It's either going to be some females or some males. It could be all females. It could be all males, but it's really interesting to me that temperature plays such a significant factor in determining that. Now, when you have a tiny turtle, and again, well, the turtles are primarily like, they're gonna be active from like April to October. That's our busy season at the Wildlife Center. If they hatch in the fall, then they're obviously going to be small. They're going to start moving. They're gonna go to a spot where they feel like they're gonna be able to, you know, bury down under the mud and be able to hibernate over winter. If it's still nice out, they're gonna be foraging for food. They're gonna be eating things um, like algae and fruit even sometimes, but you know, it's usually gonna be a lot of your small insects and maybe some uh, minnows or fish or other small uh, water type in invertebrates. There's a lot of like protein content that they need when they're young, but they are generally, a lot of them are more omnivorous than they are carnivorous. Again, this really is different depending on what species we're talking about, but I'm using painted turtles as kind of the the most common species that we are going to see. So when the the little ones have emerged from they their egg spot and they're going to go into the water, usually about August to September, that's when they are heading for water and cover. They actually are first born with a little yolk sac. And so as they're hatching from those eggs, there is this little spot on their stomachs. It's kind of like an umbilical cord. And that umbilical cord is just this little puffy little yellowish looking piece of tissue. Uh, that's actually their yolk sac. So remember, eggs have yolk right? So I think of birds, we think of reptiles. There's definitely a whole lot of research that has gone into, you know, how are birds and reptiles potentially related? Well, when the turtles hatch, this little yolk sac dissipates over a couple of days. It's actually got a ton of nutrients in it, and it's meant for giving that animal stability until it's able to be able to move on its own and get to where it needs to go. Because when you're first hatched and you're first a tiny turtle, where do you get food? And it, you know, it takes a little while. Well, this yolk sac is part of that. And what happens is that there's some blood vessels and uh, skin tissue, like a bunch of cells go around this little yolk sac and they basically kind of digest it. So they, they destroy all of the stuff that is in the yolk sac and then they use it as nutrients and so it's basically for turtles it might take a couple of days for that little umbilical cord yolk sac pouch to kind of dissipate and turn into skin covering which is the bottom of their shell which ends up being the plastron so after a couple of days you know when we have our turtles hatch we'll see the yolk sac receding so usually about two to three days later or so once we start to see that it has effectively kind of started to cover up that's when we start moving them to a little outside enclosure with fresh water 
water and then we start giving them food introduced. So at the wildlife center, it takes about a week, maybe two weeks or so at the most uh, for our turtles from hatching to being you know, independent, swimming around. You know, we're looking at them, making sure that they look like they're completely developmentally normal. And then we release them right back into the same watershed where the parent was found. So it's, it's something that is, I think, a very hard thing for those tiny turtles to, to be able to do. And yes, there's a lot of predation that happens on tiny turtles because they're probably very easy to eat for things that are scavenger species. But we know that the more turtles that we can save, the better that their populations are going to be because those populations across the world entirely, like globally, have been declining over the, the last number of decades. And usually it's due to habitat loss or water conditions, fragmentation, especially of roads going across their natural territories and then being hit by cars. So, you know, as many turtles as we can save, the better it's going to be for all of our wild turtles in Wisconsin. So that's what we do at our wildlife center. I know there are a lot of wildlife centers out there that also do the same type of hatching procedure and head starting. And it's the time of year where it's just really fun to see all these little ones and then hope that they are going to be successful and that we'll have many more turtles in our environment. So that was today's segment on WORT here talking about turtles and eggs and how they hatch and what they do and how many. Uh, We have a lot of turtles at our wildlife center and we really enjoy being turtle experts uh, in our southern Wisconsin region. So if you find a turtle and you think it needs help, definitely give us a call to troubleshoot at 608-287-3235. Otherwise, if it looks like it's just a healthy baby turtle, leave it alone. Let it get to where it's going to because they don't need to be rescued if they aren't injured. So you're looking for things like shell fractures, blood, other behaviors that might be abnormal. Otherwise, yes, they are very tiny but they, they are meant to be tiny at that age and they will eventually grow and it can take them up to 20 years until they are sexually reproductive and active just like their parents to have more baby turtles and the cycle continues. So thanks for listening today on our segment here. Thanks for listening in to Wildlife Weekly. It's now 6.53 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Buckle up because this week on Radio Astronomy, host Rourke Habegger gets into an intergalactic traffic jam as galaxies form complex spiral structures. Welcome to Radio Astronomy. I'm Rourke Habegger, and today we are going to take a ride through a stellar traffic jam. Recently, the James Webb Space Telescope took some infrared pictures of the M74 galaxy, also known as the Phantom Galaxy. In that picture, we got to see filamentary galaxy structure within the spiral arms of the galaxy. Exactly how galactic structure forms is a huge part of modern astrophysics research. And clearly, JWST is going to give us some interesting new data to help solve that mystery. While we wait for observers, theorists, and computational astrophysicists to figure out why galaxies look the way they do, let's talk about the accepted model for spiral arm formation in galaxies. The easiest way to explain it is a traffic jam. Spiral arms are the visual result of something called a spiral density wave. Have you ever been sitting still on the highway in tons of traffic 
and eventually the traffic just disappears with no hint of what caused it. This phenomenon is the result of a car density wave. When an accident, construction, or large influx of cars causes the flow of traffic to stop, that stop propagates down the highway. This wave of stopped traffic is still moving, but the cars which are stopped in the wave are constantly changing. If something like this happens in rush hour, and there are tons of cars, the wave can last for a long time, even if the original cause has already been dealt with. Next time you are sitting in traffic, and it dissipates with no clear cause, know that you likely experienced the echo of an accident. If you are more interested in traffic and its causes, check out CGP Gray's YouTube video on the subject. Some of my explanation was aided by it. Now getting back to astrophysics, what do traffic echoes have to do with galaxies? Well, spiral arms are the result of spiral density waves. A spiral density wave is exactly like a car density wave, except with stars instead of cars. The stars in a spiral arm were not always there. It is just their turn in the traffic jam. Using this perspective, we can actually separate the spiral density waves from the stars. The stars are just a fluid, like water, with a wave moving through them. Of course, they aren't a fluid exactly like water, because the individual stars interact with each other through gravity. But fluid approximations in physics are when we average the movement of a bunch of particles over a volume containing many of those particles. So, we can do the same averaging we would do with water, but with stars in a galaxy. What starts a spiral density wave of stars? It could be many things, but even just the resonances of stellar orbits around the galaxy could drive spiral density waves. Let's now focus on the timescales here, because as I just mentioned, stars are orbiting around the center of a galaxy, and during their orbit, they can get caught in a spiral density wave before passing through it and continuing on their orbit. That spiral slows their orbit a little, but not by much. Overall, the stars take 200 million years to orbit the galaxy, covering a distance of 50,000 parsecs. But spiral density waves stay in basically the same place, and this is known as the quasi-static spiral structure hypothesis. This is different from the traffic case. Whereas cars, on average, will travel the speed limit outside of the wave, the wave will move very slowly down the highway. In some cases, the traffic wave moves less than a mile an hour, but they still move. Because of the circular nature of a galaxy, the spiral density waves can become standing waves and stay where they are. So spiral arms feel just like us when we get stuck in a traffic wave. Like we are getting nowhere. Next time you are in traffic, try to remember that there are a bunch of stars and galaxies far, far away in the same situation. Then you'll maybe be less frustrated and not think the world is against you. It is just fluid dynamics of stars and cars. I hope you have a stellar week.
And that does it for our show. Thank you for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis. Your reporters were Emily Kazinger and Greg Jaboski. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg and the teams at the Daily Cardinal and Radio Astronomy. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Nate Wegehout produced this newscast. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knudsen. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast and subscribe where you follow podcasts. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish language news with Enrico Patio. Good night.